0: Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 35. I'm Kip Clark.
1: And I'm Caroline Borders.
0: And today we're going to take a more lighthearted approach, very lighthearted, in fact, and we're going to be giving a reading from Why Dogs Do That, a collection of curious canine behaviors by Tom Davis.
1: Because why not?
0: <laughs> exactly, and frankly, who does not love dogs, or at least know about dogs? If you're not a dog fan, I can understand where you're coming from.
1: And you may not know the answer to some of these questions.
0: Exactly, so listen up. Chapter 5. Why do dogs bury bones? Essentially, dogs bury bones for the same reason squirrels bury nuts, as a hedge against the lean times. Not that the typical dog has to worry about where his next meal will come from, but his wild ancestors figured out a long time ago that when food is easy to come by, It's a good idea to put some aside, kind of like a savings account that can be drawn on in an emergency. This behavior is called caching, and it's common among wolves and certain species of foxes as well as dogs. My impression though, judging by the prevalence of the theme in the popular art, literature, and film, including cartoons, of the early and mid-20th century, is that dogs aren't burying bones the way they used to. Not that they're any less interested. The more likely explanation is that they're simply not getting the opportunity. The veterinary profession have done a pretty thorough job educating dog owners about the consequences of a shard of bone lodging in their pet's digestive tract. The jaws of the average dog, after all, can generate several hundred pounds per square inch of crushing force, more than enough to splinter even the toughest beef bone.
1: And chapter eight, why do dogs chase cars? I've actually always been curious about this. All dogs, to one degree or another, chase. It's instinctive, a manifestation of the drive, without which their wild forebears could not have survived. Something moves, and the wolf, or the untrained dog, chases it. This genetically programmed response to motion is what makes a weasel, for example, kill every chicken in the hen house. It's not that the weasel's bloodthirsty, rather it's simply reacting in the way it has evolved to react. Some canine behaviorists have gone so far as to suggest that dogs chase cars because they mistake them for the large wild ungulates, such as moose, that constitute such a significant percentage of the wolf's prey base. It's certainly true that a moose is as big as a lot of cars and drawing an Another parallel, it's equally true that moose wound, maim, and even kill their fair share of wolves. The flip side of this coin is that some wolf moose encounters and successfully, at least from the wolf's perspective. The same cannot be said of the typical dog-car encounter, to which the only happy ending is a dog that escapes injury and, you hope, learns a lesson it will never forget.
0: Chapter 10. Why do dogs roll in vile things like decaying carp? There are a couple of theories, by no means mutually exclusive, that explain why dogs take such obvious and unabashed delight in rolling in stuff that makes us gag. Excrement, carry-on, the older and fouler the better, anything and everything that is rotten, putrid, and deliquescent. They don't just roll in it, wriggling joyfully on their backs, they do their damnedest to smear it around and rub it in. The more specific hypothesis suggests that dogs roll in stinky stuff to mask their own scent, and thus gain an edge over prey species that might otherwise detect them and flee. Contemporary human deer hunters do much the same thing when dousing their clothing with various bottled scents. The other theory, more general in application, holds that it's a way for a dog to tell other dogs where they've been and what they've found there. A dog streaked with excrescence is viewed by his brethren as a storyteller and canine society holds storytellers in high esteem. This much is certain. Old-time hound handlers and bird dog trainers agree that the dogs with the best noses are the ones most inclined to cover themselves in excrement. Given the fact that an average dog has some 220 million scent receptors, a human has a paltry 5 million, it really makes you wonder.
1: Chapter 11, why do dogs eat vile things like horse apples and cow pies? Animals in general are not plagued by the fear of excrement that haunts humankind. Many winter birds, wild turkeys for example, depend on the hot lunch program, cow manure, which they pick through for kernels, of undigested grain or other tasty nuggets. Other species practice self-recycling, routinely ingesting their own scat. Rabbits literally must consume their own feces to obtain certain vitamins critical to their survival. Dogs eat horse apples, cow pies, and the like because their wild ancestors, rather than dying of starvation when normal fare couldn't be found, adapted to eating anything that had nutritive value, including excreta. In this regard, think of wolves, and therefore dogs, as carnivores by nature, but omnivores by necessity. Of course, there's probably nothing more repulsive than the sight of an adored pet. The same animal that frenziedly licks your face given the chance, gobbling its own stools or those of its kennel mates. The technical term for this behavior, by the way, is coprophagy. Dogs are great imitators, and it's believed that one of the reasons they do this is to imitate what they observe you doing when you pick up after them. And because dogs pick things up with their mouths, the rest comes more or less naturally. Ironically, the tremendous improvements in the quality of dog food over the past decade or so have, in all likelihood, made this behavior even more common.
0: Chapter 13. Why do dogs sniff the behinds of other dogs? The long and short of it is that this is how dogs identify and introduce themselves to one another, having found it extremely difficult, and not particularly enlightening, to shake hands and exchange the usual pleasantries. A dog sniffing another dog's area is essentially saying, hello, how are you? Have we met before? Every dog has a unique scent signature created by the secretions of its anal sacs. A pair of small kidney-shaped structures on either side of the anus. This signature not only serves to distinguish it from all other dogs, but apparently reveals whether the dog in question is male or female. And while scientists suspect that the scent signature relays additional information as well, they're still scratching their heads over exactly what that might be.
1: Chapter 15. Why do adult dogs chew on bones, rugs, antiques, etc? This is really a two-part question. All dogs, their age notwithstanding, chew on bones. That's simply a given. In evolutionary terms, bone gnawing no doubt became instinctive because the wolves that indulged in it, even after every molecule of meat was gone, kept their teeth and gums healthier, longer, and thus gained an advantage in the struggle for survival. Rugs, antiques, and the like are a somewhat different matter although there is a certain indiscriminateness at the heart of the chewing impulse. Assuming your dog knows better, one of the proverbial big ifs, chewing these off-limit items probably reflects its feeling that it isn't receiving enough attention. To paraphrase the famous remark made by Glenn Close's chilling character in Fatal Attraction, the typical dog will not be ignored especially a house dog that's accustomed to lots of praise, petting, and play. It's analogous to the child of inattentive or preoccupied parents who not only purposefully commits some petty household crime, but makes sure he gets caught. The way the kid, or dog, sees it, it's better to risk a scolding than to remain invisible. Of course, there could also be a revenge factor involved, which would explain why your dog zeroes in unearingly on your most valuable piece of furniture.
0: Chapter 18. Why do retrieving breeds retrieve? Virtually all dogs possess the retrieving instinct to some degree, the archetypal example being the dam who picks up a fugitive pup and retrieves it to the whelping pen. In the wild, of course, wolves retrieve small prey animals, or pieces of large ones, for their young to feed upon. It's natural for dogs to pick up things in their mouths and carry them around. Sticks, gloves, shed deer antlers, dead carp, etc and from there it's not a big step to get them to bring their booty to you. Praise and a tennis ball have probably taught more dogs to retrieve than any other method ever. What distinguishes the retrieving breeds, labs, goldens, chesapeakes, etc., is their desire in this respect. If you want to get technical about it, this desire is a selective, i.e., human-induced refinement of the basic prey drive. Instead of taking the quarry or its substitute in its jaws and killing it, the retriever takes it in its jaws and tenderly, you hope, delivers it to hand. Dogs recognized as retrievers have existed since the 16th century, if not earlier. In the late 18th and 19th centuries, the progenitor of the modern lab was used on the high seas to retrieve fish that had become disentangled from the nets. By breeding one dog with strong inclination to retrieve to another, the retrieving instinct was eventually fixed with the development of the specific breeds we know today not coming until later.
1: Chapter 19 Why do pointing breeds point? When a mammalian predator stalks its prey, it typically freezes for a few moments before springing into action. This hesitation is at the root of the pointing instinct. While various hound-type dogs had been employed for millennia to successfully hunt and capture four-footed game, birds were a different story. Dogs could find them, but finding them usually meant putting them to wing. And unless you were a nobleman with a falcon, a flushed bird was a lost bird in those pre-firearm days. But some insightful soul observed that a few dogs occasionally hesitated, momentarily transfixed, when they encountered scent. If the dog could be trained to set its birds rather than flush them, a hunter might be able to sneak up and cast a net over them. Indeed, the earliest written accounts of pointing dogs dating to the 13th century would seem to indicate that it was more trained behavior than than an instinctive one. By the 16th century, however, when fowling pieces were beginning to come into widespread use, selective breeding had produced dogs with a pronounced natural tendency to point. By that time, too, the two basic divisions of pointing dogs had been established, with the short-haired breeds known generically as pointers and the long hairs as setters, or setting dogs. At its best, the point not only indicates the presence and location of game, but has the effect of making it hold until deliberately flushed by the hunter.
0: Chapter 20. Why do dogs like to hang their heads out the car window? Let's clear the air right now and stress that, unless you're prepared to equip him with goggles, this really isn't a good thing to let your dog do. Neither is letting your dog ride loose in the back of a pickup, a practice that strikes me as the equivalent of riding a motorcycle without a helmet. It's fine, until it isn't. Beyond the fact that the average image conscious dog looks major cool with his ears flapping in the wind and a silly grin on his face, I think the answer lies in those 220 million scent receptors stuffed inside his snout. A dog's sense of smell is its primary sense of apprehending its world, a world that, given our own pitiful olfactory powers, we can scarcely imagine. And a dog shut up inside a car experiences the same kind of sensory deprivation you and I would if we were locked inside a darkened room. So when it sticks its head out the window, it's essentially flipping on the floodlights. Even when the windows barely rolled down, the typical dog will wedge his nose into the crack just to see what's going on out there.
1: Chapter 25. Why do dogs gulp their food rather than savor it? To tell the truth, some dogs are dainty, finicky eaters, much to the consternation of their owners who, in a role-reversing twist, often themselves assume the role of beggars coaxing and controlling their precious pet to take one more itsy bitsy bite. In the main, however, it must be admitted that dogs display an appalling lack of table manners. They don't eat their food, they hoover it, gobbling it up so fast and furiously that it's a wonder they don't black out for forgetting to breathe. Whoever coined the term chow hound knew what they were talking about. But it isn't simply the rate of ingestion that's remarkable, it's the volume too. Long before Belder Conehead uttered the immortal words, Let us consume mass quantities. Dogs were doing just that. They have been known to bolt as much as one-fifth of their body weight in food in a single-belly-busting session. The explanation for this gluttonous behavior lies in the competition that occurs whenever social carnivores, i.e. wolves, bring down prey. If not exactly a case of winner-take-all and devil-take-the-hindmost, the animal that made quick work of feeding put itself in a better position to survive and pass along its genes. So when you accuse your dog of wolfing down its food, you're using precisely the right metaphor.
0: Chapter 27 Why do dogs walk in a circle before lying down? Robert Benchley, the acerbic humorist and unofficial chairman of the Adirondack Round Table, argued that one of the reasons a boy should have a dog is that it teaches him to turn around three times before lying down. The why of this, however, has received surprisingly little attention from students of canine behavior. Folklore has it that dogs circle to flush out any snakes that might be lurking in the area. Given the fact that a snake-bitten dog of yore was unlikely to enjoy the opportunity to procreate, this explanation has a certain rough-hewn Darwinian logic. A somewhat more plausible, albeit less colorful, theory, though, is that the wolf circled in order to flatten the vegetation and simply make themselves more comfortable. Over the eons, this behavior became incorporated at the genetic level. The really interesting question is whether or not dogs in the northern and southern hemispheres respectively circle in different directions as a result of the Coriolis effect.
1: Chapter 29, why do dogs eat grass? Remember, dogs are carnivores by nature, but omnivores by necessity, and by circumstance, When wolves bring down a moose, deer, caribou, or any of the other large herbivores that comprise the bulk of their diet, they immediately tear into its paunch, consuming not only the flesh and organs but vegetable matter in various states of digestion. The dog's desire for an occasional salad, therefore, is an atavistic expression of its racial memory, a harking back to the ways of its ancestors. And despite the balanced nutrition provided by most dog foods these days, there's something about a side of fresh greens, especially it seems in the spring, time that's awfully tempting. It could be the flavor, it could be the texture, no one really knows. The problem is that the digestive system of the dog isn't well equipped to handle the stuff straight, not partially pre-digested, which is why there's often a direct cause and effect relationship between grass eating and upchucking. In fact, dogs suffering from an upset stomach will eat grass specifically to induce vomiting, hoping to purge whatever ill humors are affecting them.
0: And now the final chapter we're going to read from today. 34. Why do dogs seem to understand and respond to our moods? It's often said that dogs can sense our moods, and no one who spent any amount of time in their company would dispute this. Dogs are great empathizers, able not only to tune into our emotional wavelength, but to give us precisely what we need. A boisterous greeting, a soulful knowing gaze, a reassuring thump of the tail. If more people had dogs, there would be far fewer of what are generically known as mental health professionals. Indeed, the therapeutic value of canine companionship, especially for those who are elderly, disabled, or alone, is well documented. Some observers, at a loss to explain the extraordinary insights of which dogs are capable, have credited them with a kind of ESP, a sixth sense, if you will. There's actually a germ of truth in this contention. Dogs, after all, can hear things we can't, and the world revealed to them by their noses is as brilliant, distinct, and variegated as our world of sight. Given the fact that emotional turmoil is often expressed physiologically, it's not a stretch to argue that dogs can, on occasion, literally smell our moods. Think of it this way, if people can smell fears, dogs certainly can. Dogs are also masters at reading body language and picking up on subtle inflections of voice, manner, and carriage. You could almost say that they know us better than we know ourselves. So thank you all for listening to this reading. We hope you learned something new. And if there are future books that you'd like us to read from, or anything of that sort, please let us know. Of course, you can reach us on Twitter, at Saunter. Our email is stridensaunter at gmail.com. You can check us out on Facebook, Stride and Saunter, or visit our website, Saunter. And as always, from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.
1: And Caroline Borders, we'll see you next time.